They just came on now. Let's try to get closer to the stage. Sorry. Do you want to go on my shoulders? Yeah, that'd be unreal, thanks. Wow! Three celebrates connections made by music this summer. Find out more at 3.ie forward slash music. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and my next guest is one of the most prolific writers we've had on the show. In addition to receiving an Order of Australia for her service to literature, her writing is diverse and critically acclaimed and includes essays, memoir, food and travel writing, short stories, plays, and 13 published novels. Marion Halligan is here to talk to us primarily about her latest novel, Valley of Grace. Marion, welcome. Thank you. Now, before we begin chatting, can I just ask you to read a little from Valley of Grace, just to give our listeners a sense of the book? Yes. Because uh, this is quite a hard thing to do because it has a number of disparate characters. So I spent ages trying to decide which book to read about. And this is about a man called um, Luke who's gone to the town of Lourdes in the south of France with his mother who's dying of cancer and she wants him to go with her. So they've been out taking the waters and so on. And uh, this is the next bit. Luke sits at a cafe and drinks a beer. The carriages have disappeared. A few wheelchairs remain, but most of the crowd is healthy. Tourists, pilgrims, he supposes. A group of young people with Down syndrome dances past, laughing. The light is bright. The great church of Our Lady gleams sugary white as a Karam tablepiece. Its stones spun into fantastical shapes. He shrinks it with his squinting eyes and breaks off a turret to suck, except he hates sweet things, and the sight of this makes his teeth ache. The young man asks permission to sit at his table. He's dressed in a black sweater and trousers, rather silky and shiny, and not at all somber in his bright life. He has a round, rosy brown cheeks like polished apples and black coals. A southerner, and when he opens his mouth, he speaks with the local accent and very purely, not sloppily the way people do in Paris. There are spare tables, but the young man sits and begins to talk. He seems to want Luke's company. He orders a cup of coffee and talks idly at first. He is from Montpellier to begin with, but now he lives in Lourdes. Where is Luke from? Ah, Paris. And a bookshop. That sounds wonderful. He's never been to Paris. He would like to go one day. He hears it is very different from hereabouts. Luke is surprised to find himself in this conversation. It is as though the young man spins it like a web, skillfully, invisibly, and Luke, who has had no intention of staying, finds himself ordering another beer. The young man asks, is he a pilgrim? And Luke tells him about his mother. Ah, he says, and lays his hand over Luke's where it rests on the table, looking sorrowfully into his eyes. Luke feels his hand go still like a trapped animal. He thinks of Julia and his white bottom in the spare room, the young man sliding out the door of the shop. Rough trade. This young man must be a person who picks up tourists, pilgrims, and people whom he consoles. He is a professional, professional consoler of men whom he recognizes as gay. 
Luke imagined that his bottom wouldn't be white, but a golden, biscuity brown, like skin in his face, his hands. But then he thinks that the view he has in his mind of Julian's white bottom moving is that of the spy, the person who is outside the couple. He is surprised to find himself thinking spy. Would voyeur be better? Given that his scene was unwitting, he does not think either word describes him. Neither was his intention. Ah, intentions. The hand is soft and cool as it lies over Luke's rough trade. Very delicate rough trade, this young man is. He is being offered a chance to find out if Julian is right about sex and love. Presumably he'll have to pay, which Julian doesn't, but this young man looks as though he would deserve it. Will they go to his hotel? Or probably the young man has somewhere to take people. Maybe he shouldn't have drunk two beers in the middle of the day. But why not? And why not? This is what life is offers in the midst of death. That's what the young man is saying. He's consoling Luke, but with words. He leans forward, his eyes shining with the hope he is offering of his mother's freedom from pain and her glorious welcome before the throne of heaven and his own eventual reunion with her there one day. The man's hand curls tight around Luke's. The high neck of his black sweater pulls away a little, and he sees that the white shirt he glimpsed above the black jumper is in fact a priestly collar. Luke laughs, and the young man, looking wounded, takes his hand back. I'm sorry, said Luke. I'm laughing at myself, my foolish self. I'm afraid, well, no, I mean, I'm not a believer. I think I'm going to lose my mother soon, and that will be forever. But human life's always been like that. That's how it is. The man put his hand out again. This might be your chance, he said, this place of miracles. The greatest miracle is the recovery of faith. Luke stared into the moist brown eyes regarding him so lovingly. He caught a saying, I'm supposing you wanted to go to bed with me. That could have been a revelation. He was not so cruel. Instead he smiled ruefully for his lack of faith for his own sexual confusion. Oh, pray to you, the man said. Thank you. Luke walked back to the hotel, wondering if he was sorry that his chance for adventure had turned out to be the comfort of the church. He ought to apologize mentally to that young man for thinking he was a gay hustler. Of course, he could be gay. Some men did see the church as a way out. He recalled his soft hands so cool against his, and his mother's words came back to him, a miracle for my health or anything else. Of course, she meant him. That's why it was here. If he thought of it earlier, he could have told a young priest. That would have been a good subject to chew on. Well, the church has saved him from sin this time, though that was not what his mother meant. He knew she wanted him normal and married, with children. It is terrible to grow old without children, she says to him. Life without children, it is not to be thought of. Mm. So... That's a lovely passage to read, and it's quite um, interesting because the whole Lord chapter is is actually oddly funny, isn't it? It is funny. Now, I'm glad you say, you say that because I think that, I mean, not going to fall off your chair laughing at it, but I think it is intrinsically extremely funny mm. as things are when um, people get their wires crossed. And both of the young men are earnestly um, supposing one thing about the other, which is absolutely wrong, but only one ever finds out. 
yes, the, the, there's the, the, the humor, I suppose, and, and even just a hint of irony in that, that chapter that you read. And I guess there's irony and humor in, in the whole notion of Lord, the, the idols that they come across, all the sort of gaudy, flashing um, yes. icons in the, in the shops. Oh, yes. I mean, all those incredible um, um, plastic sort of objects in the shape of the Madonna to that you fill with water, which is just holy water. It doesn't have any any particular benefits, but it but it's very holy. So you can buy whole jerry cans to fill up with it, or you can buy just these little plastic bottles and the Madonna's crown screws off and then you fill it with water and screw the lid back on again. And fridge magnets with sort of um strange flashing lights on them and and I must say, when I went to Lord and I gave this notion to Luke, I found it a quite um, a quite frightening place because there were so many very ill people, and you thought, what are they hoping for? You know, people who were clearly dying, people without arms and legs, and so on. <laughs> and you thought, oh, what sort of miracles are they expecting? Then, of course, people say, no, it's the experience of grace. That's what you go for. Well, it's interesting, and, and I think you capture this quite well in the book. The, I guess, the sort of interaction between the real and the gaudy, because there's, yes. you know, there's the real pain, and and it's quite touching, and and there's the real sincerity. I think there's a fair bit of sincerity between Luke and and the priest at that moment as well, yes. and and that sincerity, you know, sort of mirroring its, I guess, its, um, you know, the idolatry that it's facing is it's quite yes. interesting. Yes, I mean, Lourdes is a quite strange place like this it's, um, because it's full of contradictions, full of paradoxes. And, of course, human life is full of paradoxes. It's full of, of, of people kind of doing strange things at the, at the same time. And, of course, this passage is a reference to him coming home unexpectedly when he's not supposed to be home. Um, and he's been thinking of Montaigne, and he knows he's got a copy of Montaigne upstairs in the attic, and he goes up there and he finds... Um, his partner Julia in in bed um, with another man, and um, and of course this leads to the conversation that I often have with my gay friends who say, Marion, what the trouble with heterosexual couples is that they're hanging up on monogamy. Homosexual couples don't worry about this, but of course Luke is hung up on monogamy. Julia who doesn't care about it. And that, that's an interesting set of um, ambiguities, I think, in human behaviour. Certainly. And, and again, you know, you've got that, the real tenderness between Luke and Julianne, and you've got that, I guess, the fake tenderness between Julianne and, you know, the fellow he's found with. Yes, yes. There's yes. a sort of real love and the false love, and I guess that's a theme that seems to come through the novel. Yes, yes. Well, Julianne says, look, it's just like playing squash with somebody. <laughs> Um, which, of course, is a kind of, that's a comical remark in itself. But, but I think a lot of gay men do think that sex is like a game of squash. It's just something that you do. And I, I think that we, uh, I think our society thinks a lot about sex, thinks, certainly thinks a heck of a lot about fertility, which is what this book is about, and which is one of my interests. And, of course, you know, that passage, um, uh, Luke's mother says, life without children it's not to be thought of um but in fact a lot of people have to think about life without children certainly and i and i guess luke has to sign on to it i mean that's part of 
I guess, part of who he is. He has to accept. And yet, there is an opportunity for him, isn't it? But it, again, yes. it's one of these odd opportunities. Well, it is. It's a very ambiguous opportunity. Um, again, his friend asked, will they father um, a baby for um, two lesbian women, which they do. Um, uh, which is, it, this is this quite interests me. Um, my daughter-in-law, is, who has a new baby, is in a parents' group. There's about 10 parents, and two of the parents in this group um, are lesbian women with lesbian partners, which seems quite a high um, um, percentage. Um, but they're perfectly normal parents having a perfectly normal time with um, with their babies, and and everybody's very accepting and happy with it. But presumably somewhere there's a Luke. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, um, I inquire of my daughter-in-law, but she doesn't know. <laughs> and, and I guess it's, you know, it is an interesting perspective to paternity. Well, it, it's very interesting. I mean, for me, this is the big question. But for her, of course, this is the one question she can't ask. How did the baby get fathered? This is this is this is quite <laughs> quite an interesting question altogether. Yes, and I think yeah. it's again one that you explore in different ways throughout the novel, don't you? Because there is another yes. sort of strange father, false father or real father, hard to say. But there's Jean Marie, isn't there? Oh yes, yes, yes. Now he, I think, is a very sinister person, and he is a person who thinks there should never be. Well, for him, there should never be babies. Baby, he doesn't do babies. They um, part of his life. He's a serious Catholic philosopher. And Luke in Lord finds um, a piece um, on a pamphlet that he's written that, you know, salvation is so often in our society begins with a child, which is very ironic considering that um, John Marie would um, insist that his wife never get pregnant because he had to be the only um, uh, person looked after in that house. She wasn't going to have time to um, look after a baby at all. Of course, this turns around and bites him when one of his um, students that he has affairs with um, gets pregnant, which they do from time to time. And usually his wife has has sorted it out for him. She's given them fact checks and sent them off to a place called the House in the Pines. And they come back without the baby. But one young woman... Um, and since Jean Marie is a Catholic philosopher and she um, is studying Catholic philosophy and is a strict believer, says, "No, I'm not going to abort this child. I'm going to have it." And um, Sabine, uh, the wife, regards herself as this baby's godmother, which is a quite interesting notion. And um, the young woman has the baby and brings her up herself, but. She's a busy student writing a thesis, doing tutoring, so Sabine has the baby quite a lot. So Jean-Marie gets neglected. She's very good. And you almost feel like his, his salvation begins with that child too. I mean, that there's almost something human about him by the end with the stain on his sweater. <laughs> well, quite possibly. And what he, he schools himself trying to make himself cups of coffee because he's never done anything to himself in his whole life. And so he can't get his own breakfast. He doesn't know how to do anything. And, um, yes, it, it will be the making of him eventually if he doesn't scald himself to death or something stupid like that. Or, or even when he sort of comes to this realization, and I don't want to give anything away, but, you know, when he's actually 
sitting down with you know the wild child and, and yes. starts to cry. You almost feel there's something happening to him. Well, that's yes. positive. Yes, I think so. If only a, re- a realization of what he might have done. I never spell that out. I'm, I'm, I never want to say absolutely that this is what happened there. But I think that you know the careful reader can pretty, pretty thoroughly draw the conclusion. Yes, and you feel Jean Marie draws that conclusion too. That he's quite clear in his mind. Yes, yes, it, and, and that's perhaps the beginning of his um, his, his loss of that total uh, God philosopher professor person that. Um, that he has been up till now, so yes. absolutely sure of himself. And the beginning of his humanity, to a certain extent. Yes. Yes. So did you worry, um, I mean, this is such a, a French book in its way, you know, it, it's not only because it's set in France, but there's a kind of French feel about it, French themes. Did you worry about writing a book that was so intrinsically French? Um, yes, I did. I worried about it a lot. I thought, this is a terribly risky thing to do. Um, it started off as a short story 20 years ago, um, which, which is the first chapter, the story of um, of Fanny, um, who works in... Because it's not all about gaming. I mean, there's quite a lot of heterosexual stuff in it. Um, but the uh, story of um, Fanny, who works in Luke's bookshop, and Gerard, the very handsome builder, who swarms all over the facades of buildings in a very dangerous way. And um, And I intended it to be just a short story, and I thought... I'll write it from an entirely French point of view because I've written things um, that have happened in France quite often, but they've always been um, uh, happening to Australians in France. And so I always had this alibi if they got anything wrong. Well, they were Australians, they didn't know. But I wanted this to be about French people as ordinary people. You notice I've got really no French words in the book except for place names. Um, I didn't want them to use any French words or any suggestion that there was a foreign language going on. I wanted this to be their own language. And um, so, um, yeah, I thought it was a great risk. I still do. Um, I'm surprised that nobody nobody had said really anything about that. Nobody Certainly I've not had any criticism for it, which I'm quite pleased. I have lived in France quite a lot. And I just trusted my intuition to go along with it. Yes, and I suppose that if the novel is actually launched in French in France, then, then maybe you have to um, deal with this. I mean, at the moment, your your audience is probably primarily not French. That's right. And, um, well, years ago, I wrote a novel called Spider Cup, which was about an Australian woman who goes to France. And um, a French agent looked at it and said, why would the French want to read about their own country written by a foreigner, and I suspect it will never be translated into French. I have friends in France who read it, um, who, who think that it works, so that's good. But I think, I think the French are very, um, they're very proud of their own country. They wouldn't think that a foreigner had anything to say about it at all. And yet I suppose coming in with a foreign eye, and you know, I guess in some ways you've, you've lived in France, so you have an inside sense of the place, but at the same time your eyes will always be foreign. That gives you a perspective that perhaps a French person wouldn't have. Yeah, yeah. But I also wanted the things that are happening to the French people to be the sorts of things that happen to everybody. I do think, 
I'm, I'm very interested in this whole idea of fertility because I'm of an age where when I was sort of growing, when I, when I was getting into my late teens, um, the, the, the thing, the really clever thing for girls to do was to get married without being pregnant. Um, and not a lot of them achieved it. Most people were pregnant when they got married, and there are no particular signs that those marriages were any worse than any others. Um, and people who didn't get married in that way either um, went and stayed with aunts in the country for six months or so, or they um, went overseas if they were very rich, or they ended up in Dickensian homes for unmarried mothers. Um, there was a heck of a lot of pregnancy outside wedlock and people seemed to, you know, well, people did it once in the back of Morris Minor and they got pregnant. That was that was what happened in my time, which was a sign of agility. Now, of course, um, I see young women in their 30s with the most harrowing tales to tell of trying to get pregnant because, of course, in my days, you know, you were 19, 18, 20 when that happened. These days, they're 36, 37, and it's not easy to get pregnant, and they want babies, and they go through IVF, and, oh, they go through miscarriages, and they, you know, they, they hear the clock ticking louder and louder as the years pass, and they don't manage it. Oh, it's very, you know, it's kind of very sad out there. Yes, and I suppose you've traced that to a certain extent with Fanny. Yes. But there's also the relationship, I suppose, and this is, again, something that I think the novel pivots around, of you know, love in its many forms, and that includes yes. maternal love as well as you know, I think um, the kind right. of love between men and a women, between two men, between two women. It, it's explored in, in many ways. It's, I suppose you could say it's the oldest theme, isn't it? <laughs> it is the oldest theme. I think it's the most, um, the most fascinating, fascinating theme. Love, the betrayal of love, the birth of love, the death of love, perhaps. I think, I realise it's what I write about all the time. It's what interests me. And it's still fresh and new. Yes. And, of course, the title, which is, is the title of a place, um, but um, also has, I think, further metaphorical meanings. And a valley of grace is, I think, a place where love is. You live with love in a valley of grace. And then there's real grace, and I suppose there's also the false grace yes. that you explore, yes. and again, that relationship between the two. That's right. That's grace right. has many meanings in the book. Oh, it does. It does. It's a wonderful word, Grace. So I love it. I'm noti- I notice that a lot of parents call their, their daughters Grace these days, as though it's a word that people have newly become conscious of. It's come back in. Yes. Yes. Um, now, for me, Fanny is really the central character. I, there are yes, other perspectives yes. and other voices, but I felt primarily that the whole novel was filtered through her perspective to a certain extent. Yes, 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 yes. Fanny is the important person. Mm. Did, were any of the characters particularly tricky for you? Uh, I don't know that they were, really. They just seemed to kind of prevent themselves. Um, yeah, when when a book's going well, certain characters, you know, I mean, obviously I set them up, but then they sort of, and then I gave, give them a characteristic or two, and then once they've got those characteristics, they've got their own personalities, and they start um, they start acquiring more characteristics of things all by themselves, and they behave in certain ways, and you can look at them and you think, now, would Luke do this, or would Fanny do that, or would she do that? 
and um, and you realise that um, you you've kind of given them enough autonomy to um, to live on their own and to kind of function, so that you just have to kind of interrogate them and find out what it is they want to do, and off you can go. So in fact, it was a very happy book to write for for this reason. I, I started it 20 years ago in Paris, seeing the Gerard characters swarming all over the front of the um, of the building that he was renovating, and at the same time um, uh, going to the church of the, the Val de Grace, the Valley of Grace, which was just a few doors up, and hearing that legend of the Queen of France who said who who got married at 14, and um, to the King of France, and at 36 still hadn't had a baby. And she said to God, give me a baby and I'll give you a church. And God gave her a baby who turned into Louis XIV. quite true because his father died when he was very young. And, um, and of course, Fanny's interested in that notion, the bargaining power of a French queen saying to God, give me a baby and I'll give you a church. And she's very conscious that young women don't have that kind of bargaining power in these days, although there is, again, that rather funny thing um, that I don't spell out very hard. I mean, how did God send the baby is another matter altogether. Um, how did he make it happen? There's a suggestion that maybe he sent one of his cardinals to do it, gossip had it at the time, that the father of the baby, of course, was Louis XIV. Um, and there was a suggestion that maybe the father was um, Cardinal Mazarin, which is another interesting idea altogether. But um, so that was just going to be um, that that particular story, and then it grew from there, and it seemed to grow very naturally. I didn't do anything with it for about 15 years, and then I was a bit stuck with something I was writing, and I thought, hmm, maybe. I could get that short story out and finish it, and then I um, finished it, and I thought that's not the end of it, and started writing more bits to go with it. Well, that's a lovely story. And uh, you know, I, I know we shouldn't judge books by their cover, but um, I, you also so beautifully summed up the book's tone for me. I felt it matched mm. the book quite well. Did, did you have any say in it? Oh, I had a certain say in it. Um, mainly to say yes, I think that's terrific. <laughs> um, although um, the artist who did it came up with about oh thirty different, well thirty designs. They um, some of them were the same design in different colours or in sepia or in colour or whatever. So it wasn't quite thirty. And I liked certain ones, and they and the publisher liked certain ones. And we kind of narrowed it down so that we both liked the same one. And I was very happy with this. I think that um, that it's, it's just got a good feeling about it somehow. And I like the little piece of writing, the old piece of writing down the side and just that sense of, of the old Paris street and the church in the distance, which isn't the Val de Grasse, but never mind. It's a very it fine church. picks up the bookstore. It does, yes. Now, speaking of bookstores, um, you have been quoted as saying that all writers are readers. Do you see reading and writing as analogous activities? Are they are they for you? Oh, absolutely, yes. It astounds me that the number of creative writing students who claim they don't read 
And it seems to me, um, imagine if you had a teenager who wanted to be um, a rock musician who said, oh, no, I don't listen to other rock musicians, I just play my own music. You'd think he was out of his tree. I mean, aspiring <laughs> rock musicians listen to rock music all the time. Uh, I think aspiring writers and any any kind of writer would be reading all the time. That's what I do. I I think it's a wonderful alibi. Whenever anybody finds me reading a novel at 10 o'clock in the morning, I say, well, I'm a novelist. I have to keep abreast of what's happening in the world of novels. Yes, that's the excuse, isn't it? Do you, do you see one as almost the reward and the other as the work? <laughs> yes, yes. And I just love... I just love seeing how people do novels. I'm very interested. I've just read Arnold Bennett's The Wives, the whole The Old Wives Tale, which I found on my shelves and had for about 40 years and never read. And I thought, I should have read that. And it was fascinating. And I thought I've learned a whole lot of things about writing from him. At the same time, I've also just read A.S. Bites, the children's book, which is coming out this month. And that's an amazing piece of work, too. And I, I think people who say, when I'm writing, I don't read, in case it influences me, um, are making a mistake. I think they should read a lot. And then it wouldn't, it wouldn't worry them. Yes. Now, I know you don't like to talk about um, upcoming work, so I won't ask you to give me too much. <laughs> but can you just give us a hint about, you know, some of the, I guess, some of the themes you might like to explore next or in the near future? Well, one of the things that I am doing is writing um, uh, sort of small pieces of memoir, pieces two or 3,000 words long about, about my past, about my family's past. I'm quite interested in... Um, I'm quite interested in, in those, and perhaps one day I'll collect them all together, I don't know. But I'm also writing a novel which has got the title Between Dog and Wolf, and the, that comes from a saying which exists in French and in Latin. I don't think we have it much in English, that the hour of twilight is the hour between the, the dog and the wolf, the hour when... Um, Another way of looking at it is when the night comes, the dog looks like a wolf. You can't tell whether it is or not. And I'm quite interested in this notion of the sort of the end of the day, the twilight, the, the way things look differently. And um, so, but I'm finding that quite hard work at the moment, so I'm mostly just thinking about it. Mm. Wonderful. Look, I'm, I'm afraid we're out of time. We could go on for probably another hour or two. <laughs> but, um, Marion, thank you so much for coming today. Um, our, next, our next guest is Gaynor McGrath, who will drop by next month to discuss her novel Limnisgate. So we'll see you then. Thanks very much.